Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. You're listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 3. Today we're going to talk about objections to near-death experiences and how to respond to them. Uh, this is uh, yours truly, Brian Chilton, flying solo today on today's podcast. And so our verse uh, for this episode it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. It says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Uh, This is uh, Brian Chilton flying solo, reminiscent of the old days of the Bellator Christie podcast. Uh, Co-host Curtis Avalo, he couldn't be uh, with us uh, on this episode today uh, due to some scheduling conflicts. Uh, So we're going to, uh, again, fly solo uh, on this episode, and uh, we're going to go through answer some objections that people have to near-death experiences. And on the start of Episode 4 coming up next week, uh, then we'll look to uh, to have any type of questions, additional questions uh, that Curtis may have in, uh, regarding uh, today's podcast. And uh, we'll move into our fourth and final episode uh, regarding near-death experiences. And so uh, we're excited that you've taken this journey along with us. And I also just want to remind you of some upcoming podcasts coming up in November. Uh, November is a miscellaneous month. We uh, don't have anything, we don't have really a series uh, in uh, tact for the month of November. We are looking to have a couple of interviews, uh, if all goes well. Uh, Bellator Christie contributor uh, Amanda Burke is looking to 
uh, have a podcast with us, an interview with us sometime in November uh, to make up for the one that we were unable to do this past summer on financial apologetics. And we do definitely have uh, Dr. Tim Stratton down to record a podcast toward the end of the month of November. And I think we have Dr. Brian Melton who's supposed to come back with us. I don't know if we're going to get him this November or we may have to postpone that podcast uh, until a little bit later on. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming up here at one time. In fact, uh, regarding that, I want to uh, thank, take a moment to thank um, Pastor Eric Ayers and the staff at, and the uh, at not only the staff but also the church at uh, the members at Pofftown Baptist Church in Pofftown, North Carolina. Um, I'm coming off the uh, coming off a, a, what has been a fantastic revival series of meetings that we had at Pofftown Baptist Church. I, I'll be honest, my wife and my son and I we we absolutely love uh, Pastor Eric and his fiance Minnie. What a wonderful couple they are. We love the congregation at Pofftown. What a wonderful group of people they are. You know they've gone through some difficult times as many churches have, uh, but I have a good feeling that God is going to do something great there at Pofftown Baptist Church. I'm just wonderful people. They have a, the hunger for the Word of God, and boy, uh, oh, I tell you what, the spirit was strong there this week. And you know, one of the things I, I want to make mention before we go too much into our, our topic tonight, a lot of churches, for whatever reason, seem to be doing away with uh, revival meetings, and I don't understand why that's the case. Uh, quite honestly, you know, a, a lot of people will say something along the lines of, well, revival meetings don't bring in as many people to Christ as they once did. They've uh, outlived their usefulness. Well, if you look at the term revival, vive meaning life, re meaning again, in other words, bringing life again to a congregation, revivals are just as much for the saved of God, it's just as much for the church as it is for the lost. Um, and I think that we do ourselves a disservice by de-emphasizing revival services. If nothing else, it's a time that the church can come together, uh, perhaps coming together with other Christians, uh, you know, and, and bring just bringing a fellowship with one another together during this time. Um, you know, I, I think I, I, I do believe in revival services, and I think that they are important. Um, unfortunately, in this busy society, we uh, often throw away things that are important uh, because we just don't have the time or we don't make time. But, beloved, the thing is, is you make time for those things in life that, that you deem most important. Um, if it's important to you, you'll make time to do it. And so I just want to thank uh, everybody who came out this week. What a warm, Again, just a warm, warm fellowship. The Spirit was just really powerful this week. And, and uh, we just pray for that the people at Pofftown will continue to uh, experience revival. The, even though the series of meetings came to an end, uh, our prayer is that the revival continues to move forward in that church. I uh, also want to let you know about a few other uh, meetings. I, I'm actually uh, 
kind of going on tour here for a little while here in uh, here in a few counties here in North Carolina. We were down in Forsyth County at Pofftown this uh, this past week, but uh, the upcoming a few months we'll be up in here in my home county, Surrey County, around the Mount Airy area, and then we'll go on down to uh, Yakin County down to the East Bend area. Um, which we used to call home. We weren't East Bend wasn't necessarily home, but we used to live in Yakin County for many years. So, if you're in these areas, I want to let you know about uh, some speaking opportunities I have. I'll be uh, speaking this Sunday. Well, this will be the Sunday that the this podcast releases. So, if you catch this podcast early enough, then you have time to still make it. But if you, you're catching it later in the day, well, then this already passed. But this Sunday, I'll be at Fancy Gap Baptist Church in Mount Airy, North Carolina. Um, I'll be speaking there at the 11 o'clock service. Then the following couple of months, the months of November and December, I'll be uh, speaking every Sunday at uh, save one or two services um, at the 11 o'clock service at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. And even if you can't be there with us in person, uh, they normally um, they normally air their um uh, publish their their services on their Facebook Live account. So go look up Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church there in Mount Airy, North Carolina, and you should be able to see the services uh, live. And and uh, if you can't catch them live, uh, you can see the recordings of them. And obviously, we want to encourage you to be there live and in person uh, while we're there. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to be able to talk to you. Um, then coming up, uh, the first of 2022, first Sunday in 2022, uh, we'll be back down at Pofftown for the 1030 service at Pofftown Baptist Church for that one Sunday. And then the following Sunday, uh, we'll be at Enon Baptist Church for both of their morning services. I believe it was said it was 9 o'clock and uh, I believe 11, if I'm not mistaken. I've got to double check that. But anyhow, they have two morning services, and I'll be have the opportunity of being there with them. Pray for Enon. They lost their pastor not long ago uh, due to an unexpected illness. And uh, uh, so be much in prayer for the Reverend Stevens family. Also be much in prayer for Enon Baptist Church as well. So uh, some speaking opportunities coming up. I hope that you, if you're in the area, you'll come uh, meet us. We'd love to see you and love to talk with you and uh, fellowship with you. And... Uh, if you can't, uh, a lot of these services will be broadcast live on Facebook uh, through their church website, and either and even on YouTube. Some of these uh, churches have YouTube accounts as well. With that in mind, we want to move to our topic uh, today, which is uh, uh, as we're continuing this series on near-death experiences. Uh, today, we want to take a look at uh, the objections that some people have. Uh, with, against NDEs. Um, the po- last podcast, we, we looked at the objection, I mean, the, excuse me, the objective evidence that exists for near-death experiences. And on the first podcast of Season 5, we looked at uh, the, the, the theological groundwork, framework that NDEs can fit in a biblical worldview to see how they can fit in a biblical worldview. And if you recall, we said that if you hold uh, what uh, we deem to be the accurate interpretation of a dualistic conception of humanity, that we both have a material and an immaterial self, and you understand the fact that the Bible teaches in soul survival, and that is that the soul lives on beyond the scope of this mere mortal life and will one day be resurrected into a, a brand new state of existence. It's not just going to be a body again. It's going to be a pneumaticas soma. 
meaning a spiritual body, a glorified body, unlike anything we could ever think or imagine. And so, uh, with that in mind, uh, we're going to have a new body. But in the meantime, in this intermediate state, the time between our deaths and the final resurrected state, where we have the glorified bodies, we know that our spirits live on to be with God in the place called paradise. So, if you take that viewpoint, then there really is no objection that should be offered against the possibility of near-death experiences. Uh, there just really isn't any objection from a biblical worldview that one could find uh, if you take that position. Now, when we take a look at objections that are generally given against near-death experiences, they come in two forms. They come from materialists who are not necessarily Christians, uh, and, and they, they do come from Christians themselves. Christians normally, uh, are, are, uh, their objections come from two, two fronts. Either one, they are a form of materialist, which we have already argued um, and, and assessed that uh, that doesn't really co- cohere with uh, the teachings of Scripture. Uh, that the scriptures does, the scriptures do both Old Testament and New Testament uh, indicate the fact that the soul lives on beyond the scope of this mere mortal flesh to be absent from the body. Paul tells us is to be present with the Lord. This was the teachings of Jesus in Luke uh, on the cross. He told the criminal, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." And even more strongly in uh, the parable of of the rich man and Lazarus, we see this as well as uh, Jesus' teaching to uh, Martha there at the tomb of Lazarus, uh, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who lives and believes in me will never die. Would do you believe this? Or no, not never die, he says in the Greek text. So as we look at this, but there's, on, there's another front to this. There are some Christians who believe that NDEs are somehow or in some way demonic. Uh, they're part of the New Age. And so uh, let's take a look at some common objections, and we'll look at five common objections given against near-death experiences. Okay, uh, five common objections given against near-death experiences, and we'll try to offer uh, a rebuttal. The first objection given is that NDEs are works of the devil and of the New Age. Now, Robert Jeffress, I'm not not trying to condemn him. Um, I do think he's gotten way too deep into politics for his own good, uh, but that's neither here nor there. But uh, Dr. Robert Jeffress is pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, huge church. W.L. Criswell, uh, Criswell was a was a tremendous pastor for over thirty some years. Pastor Eric and I were talking about that just the other day about uh, the impact he made there in the First Baptist Church of Dallas. But he wrote the following concerning near death experiences. He says many accounts of near death experiences are similar to the occult. Now this. I have a problem with that, okay? So, for example, he says, both the occult and near-death experiences involve out-of-body experiences in contact with those on the other side. Okay, now hold on a second. (laughs) We've already shown in Scripture where there are those who've had out-of-body experiences and contact with people on the other side. 
Paul records a near-death experience. And even in one of the messages that Jeffress gives, he even admits the fact that Paul had this experience. But then he says, well, he heard things that could not be uttered. He didn't say anything about it. Well, he did say, at least that he had the experience. He did say he had the experience. So there's a discrepancy even in the teachings of Jeffress on this matter. Uh, he said it involves out-of-body experiences in contact with those on the other side. And in both the occult and near-death experiences, people claim to have psychic powers. Some claim the power of clairvoyance, the ability to discern information about the past, present, or future by unnatural means. Okay, now this is here again. <laughs> I don't think he's thought this thing through. Because if, if being able to see in the future is the occult, then what do you do with messianic prophecies? What do you do with prophecy in general where God un, uh, unveils information about the future that he's going to do in the future? So I disagree with Jeffress that this is that this type of power is occultic. Um he also goes on to say some have claimed to have telepathy, the ability to send or receive messages by people's thoughts. If they have that power, then the power did not come from the kingdom of light. It came from the kingdom of darkness. Any claims of psychic powers are associated with Satan himself. Well, now let's hold on a second. Now, I don't think that's accurate as well. Because understand, the Bible tells us that God knows the thoughts of mankind. And if you recall, the Bible in numerous, on numerous occasions mentions the fact that Jesus was able to know what a person was thinking. And it's been said by numerous people. Now, I, I know Mike Heiser got on to Millard Erickson about this, but I think that Millard Erickson deserves to be heard when he compares the spiritual communication of God to mental telepathy. Now, I know that for some people this may, this may seem a little odd, this may seem a little strange, and it may seem a little uncomfortable. Uh, but let's take a look at what Millard Erickson has to say about spiritual communication. Okay, he said this, it is, and I'm just going to read what he says here. It is sometimes assumed that the vocabulary that is distinctive to a given writer is the human element in Scripture, a limitation within which God must necessarily work in giving the Bible. From what we have just seen, however, we know that the vocabulary of the Scripture writers was not exclusively a human factor. Luke's vocabulary resulted from his education and his whole broad sweep of experience. So here again, he's talking about the illumination of Scripture. He's talking about how God spoke to individuals to provide us the Scripture that we have. Okay, So he goes on to say, Equipped with this pool of God-intended words, the author then wrote, Thus, through inspir although inspiration in the strict sense uh, applies to the influence of the Holy Spirit at the actual point of writing, it presupposes a long process of God's providential working with the author. Then at the actual point of writing, God directs the author's thinking. Since God has access to the very thought processes of the human, and in the case of the believer, indwells the individual in the person of the Holy Spirit, this is not difficult, particularly when an individual 
prays for enlightenment and displays receptivity. This process is not greatly unlike mental telepathy, although more internalized and personalized. Now again, Heiser gets on his case here about this, about the wording of this. I don't think that that's necessarily necessary. Because it doesn't matter what you want to call it. If you want to call it something else, well, fine. If there's another word that works better for you, fine. But I think that, quite frankly, that there's that there is uh, some some truth to this. That God's spirit speaks to our spirit, and in fact, uh, Nicholas Voderstorff, uh, one of the books uh, he wrote was called Divine Discourse. He argues using um, using the whole. Um, uh, language factors of uh, uh, locutions and illocutions and perlocutions, um, the theories on language. He uses the, those, those theories to indicate how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Um, speech act theory, I think is what it's called. The locutions are the written portions of Scripture that God gives by direct command, you know, uh, using in and through the Scriptures. Obviously, there's there's a lot more to that than what we have time to discuss. But uh, but then then the illocutions is is God's Spirit speaking to our spirit to, to focus us back on the revelation He's given through the written Word. And then the perlocutions would be the persuasiveness of the Holy Spirit working through our lives. So, I mean, if you want to call it something else, fine. But I don't think that, um, you know, it, <laughs> telepathy, as it's being said, mental to mental, mind to mind, spirit to spirit, I don't think that that's necessarily an occultic thing. The thing that makes the occult the occult is when people start speaking to other individuals on the other side by their own power. The problem with that, when you start messing with Ouija boards and necromancy and things of this nature, is that you don't know who you're speaking with. You don't know with whom you're speaking. And so we've got to communicate with God. We've got to focus on God. That's where the manipulation of the elements in our own power and our own in our own um, uh, authority, that's where the problems come with the occult. So we don't need to be speaking to the dead. We don't need to do this. But if near-death experiences are God-directed encounters, then it's not the occult. It's a God-directed process. Okay, so so the whole argument fails, um, and he goes on to say that uh, Jeffress appears to hold that God and angels cannot speak telepathically. God and the angels don't have the powers to uh, indicate um, future events. It, that eliminates the whole entire process of prophecy. And so Jeffress also appears to believe that uh, that that Satan is a light bearing agent. Okay, and he's going to mention Second uh, uh, Corinthians eleven, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Again, I mean no disrespect to Jeffress. I appreciate the work he does for the kingdom of God. I mean no disrespect to him whatsoever, but I don't think he knows what he's talking about when he's talking about near death experiences. Like so many people, I believe he has made the mistake of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and I think he's really mistaken when he links some of these things to the occult. Again, you have some giants of the faith like Millard Erickson and Nicholas Voderstorff who argue that the Spirit of God may speak to us in similar fashions. We may not like the word telepathy. If, if you can come up with another word to use, fine, let's use it. 
but the whole process of God speaking to His Spirit, speaking to our spirit, is very, very probable. In fact, I think it does happen. I think we see evidence of it happening in the Scripture. I think we see evidence of it continually happening today. And I think, uh, although it's a complicated read, I think uh, Nick, Nicholas Wolterstorff does a wonderful job explaining this in Divine Discourse. So, uh, now when it comes to light-bearing agents, you know, if, if we were to take this argument at face value, it would appear as if Satan had a lot more authority and a lot more power than God himself. Uh, and obviously he doesn't. But the Bible depicts God and angels as, as beings of light. For instance, 1 John 1.5 says God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is shrouded with a dazzling appearance of light. In addition to having brilliant hair of white and bronze skin, John writes in Revelation 1.16 that Jesus' face was shining like the sun at full strength. Throughout Scripture, divine theophanies are almost always accompanied by incomprehensibly brilliant light, such as Ezekiel 1.27, Ezekiel 8.2, Psalm 94.1, Psalm 52, Ezekiel 42.2, Hosea 6.5, and Ezekiel, here again, uh, Ezekiel 10.4. Even God's angels appear as a, as a brilliant, in a brilliant display of God's glory, of God's light. When the angel stood before Mary in Luke 2.9, the scripture says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Paul is not is one... We have to go back here. Paul is the one who wrote something about Satan being an angel of light, but he did not say that Satan was an angel of light. It's, it, this, this is a common misconception. It's a common misnomer. Just for instance, for instance, many people believe that the Scripture says that money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. The Scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. In like manner, Paul doesn't say that Satan is an angel of light. Rather, he says that Paul... Here's what he says. He goes on to say... And he's, in this whole context, he, he says, Such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't say Satan is an angel of light, but he says he disguises himself as an angel of light. There's a distinction there. He disguises himself in said manner to deceive. And so, for instance, uh, the whole plan of Satan is to lead a person away from God. Millard Erickson writes, The devil is, as his name indicates, engaged in opposing God and the work of Christ. He does this especially by tempting humans. This is shown in the temptation of Jesus, the parable of the weeds, and the sin of Judas. One of Satan's primary means is deception. Paul tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and that his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. His use of deception is also mentioned in Revelation 12:9 and 28. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, that's the true light, that displays the glory of Christ, the true light, who is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He opposes and hinders Christians in their service, even using physical ailments that end 
uh, to, to that end. For all of his power, Satan is limited, as indicated in the case of Job. He can be successfully resisted and will flee, James 4, 7 tells us. He can be put to flight, however, not by our strength, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is dealing with a group of individuals who claim to be super apostles. These are individuals who are using uh, materialistic means to thwart the gospel effort and lead people astray. And Paul says as much. He says, For such people are false apostles. They are disguising themselves as workers of righteousness, but they are really, he says, workers of Satan. Because in like manner, because in like manner, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he goes on to say, So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. So here again, if Satan were behind NDEs, he would be a very poor tactician because these events lead people to Christ. They lead people to God. Paul speaks to individuals of the church who allow Satan to persuade them to focus more on material things such as their preferred preacher or their preferred charity than to focus on the spiritual mission of God. Now, the greater danger to the church is not near-death experiences, which God is using as a means of apologetics, is using for an apologetic means to tell people and teach people that there is a life beyond this, this one. The more, the, the, the more focused application of this passage of Scripture is that Satan is directing our attention to worldly materialistic things that are diverting the mission and plan that God has set before us. That, my friend, is the dangerous thing. That, my friend, is far more dangerous than near-death experiences, which God is using to bring glory to himself and to tell other people that there is a life beyond this one. So, here again... I don't think that this holds whatsoever in any nth degree. To, to any to no in no uh, in no way does this argument hold, because near death experiences are bringing people to the Lord and not away from Him. They're not providing a false hope. In fact, they're they're instilling people with the hope and anticipation that there is a heaven awaiting us beyond the scope of this mere mortal life. So that's the first. That's the first objection, and so uh, let's move on to the second one. Boy, that one took a lot longer than I anticipated. <laughs> so the second one: NDEs are hallucinations. Due to the nature of many near-death experiences, um, some have materialists would say that hallucinations uh, can can account for the nature of near-death experiences. But really, it's no longer viable and a viable explanation. People have reported seeing events, people, and objects that could have never been otherwise known except for an out-of-body experience. 
Now, some people claim that they can use certain chemicals and things of this nature to provide a uh, similar experience to, as to what near-death experiences can afford. But these type of lucid experiences uh, do not happen with these, the, these, uh, with these experiences. They don't happen uh, with these experiences, and these out-of-body encounters don't happen with the ex- these experiences. In fact, a lot of times, the medication used uh, devolves into what's otherwise known as DMT, which people use to take acid trips. So you may see the lights, you may see the colors, or you may see the, the having have the uh, uh, feelings of euphoria. That might be similar to what people describe in near-death experiences. But you most certainly can't explain uh, processes outside your body and events and objects that were never known by anyone that were verified when a person returns. Those type of things don't happen. <laughs> and uh, that can only be answered by a real, actual near-death experience. And furthermore, I picked up a copy of Jeffrey Long's book, Evidence for the Afterlife. And remember, we were talking about um, Eben Alexander's experience where his brain was completely shut off except for the most primitive portion in the lower part of the brain where um, where the hallucinations are not found. Okay, Those type of experiences don't come from that part of the brain. That part of the brain, the most primitive part of the brain, I think it's the cerebellum cortex, if, unless I'm not mistaken, um, if I'm not mistaken. But this part simply runs the motor controls of the body. Well, I've been reading Jeffrey Long's, uh, who's a medical doctor, and uh, Paul Perry's book, Evidence of the Afterlife, and he even goes, takes us a step further to say that when a person dies, only the lower portion of the brain, the same area that was described by Eben Alexander, only this portion is, is, uh, is, is still working. The rest of it is shutting down. And within a few seconds of, of the heart beating, it all starts shutting down pretty quickly. And the lower sections of the brain that are, that are, that are left when a person dies uh, towards the absolute very end, these sections cannot produce the chemicals and cannot produce the electrical activity that will uh, allow for hallucinations and these type of DMT experiences. So... The portions of the brain we're talking about that's left at the point of death don't even provide these type of things. So only a, an, a, a soulish encounter, uh, only an out-of-body encounter, uh, near-death experience, the immaterial self can explain uh, these type of experiences. And again, how do you explain the fact that blind people have had visual experiences or people meet relatives that they never knew before having the encounters. Uh, it just doesn't answer. It doesn't answer the the uh, the data at all. So NDEs are more than hallucinations. They're not hallucinations. They're far more than hallucinations. Um, so there's there's again, it's apples and oranges. It's a completely different experience. The third art, the third objection is that near death experiences provide a false hope as unbelievers have experienced heaven. It is true from time to time that atheists and unbelievers report having uh, encounters of heaven. But it's important to understand that there's a difference in having a near-death experience and a complete death experience. 
I believe that it may be very possible that God is allowing unbelievers to catch a glimpse of heaven so that they can go there, so that they can get their lives right. Because countless occasions, on countless occasions, far more occasions, on far more times, I, I would dare say over 90% of the time, maybe even higher, uh, on far more occasions than not, uh, people get their lives right with God after having these encounters. They do. So I believe it may be a, a way of God providing an apologetic to unbelievers to say, hey, you can come here, <laughs> but you have to you know, get things right with me. And so, listen, we don't need to put God in the box. As Dr. Barry Leventhal told in a lecture down at Southern Evangelical Seminary, he told about many uh, victims in the Nazi concentration camps who had visions of the what they call the mystery Messiah. They had visions of Jesus. Others who were formerly part of ISIS have had visions of Jesus and became disciples of Christ, all because of these encounters with this mysterious Christ, and and even became even but were baptized even acknowledging and understanding the risk that they had being a part of these militant groups and accepting Christ, they still did it anyway because of the powerful um, transformation that was brought forth by these encounters with God. So, again, I dare say that God, that God I, I really believe that God is behind these encounters and not Satan. Because if Satan is doing this and he's bringing people, <laughs> he's bringing people to Christ, then he's completely he is he is <laughs> he is completely missing the boat. <laughs> he 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 is he is he's uh, shooting himself in the foot. And listen, Paul, you know we, we told the story, and, and we're going to talk about it here in just a few moments about uh, Jeffrey Long. And I think we've mentioned this in the past couple of podcasts, but it bears repeating. He, or he's interviewed over 1,300 people who've had near-death experiences. Now, the near-death um, experience database that he has online is uh, the Database Foundation, I think is what it's called. It's, it's upwards now to 3,000, over 3,000. In fact, it's almost, uh, almost 4,000 people that's reported having near-death experiences. And you can go to his website at the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, N-D-E-R-F. You go to N-D-E-R-F.org, and you can find out more about the ongoing research from uh, by Jeffrey Long, medical doctor, and Paul Perry. So, uh, again, this is almost now 4,000 people who've reported having near-death experiences. And so, it again, we're not talking about a few scant occasions. We're talking about something that's happening to people all around the world from different backgrounds. If Satan's behind this, <laughs> he is the biggest dummy that's ever existed. Now, let's be honest. Satan is a formidable foe, and he's a lot smarter than that, so I don't believe that he's behind this at all. So the fourth objection is that NDEs are unbiblical. I don't think we need to even go into this much because we've already provided a case in the first uh, first episode of Season 5 to show how NDEs can fit within a biblical paradigm. Uh, if one ascribes to soul survival in the intermediate state and accepts the biblical teachings of one being instantly in the presence of God after death, quite honestly, NDEs hold no problem with Orthodox Christian teaching. Uh, 
In fact, the primary view of the church for 2,000 millennia has been that the soul continues to survive after death. So, in said case, there's no problem. There's no problem whatsoever. Now, the fifth, the fifth contention, the fifth argument or objection to near-death experiences will say that the near-death experiences are too different, that they, they hold too many uh, dissimilarities, uh, they're, they're too, too different in their approaches. Um, however, Jeffrey Long, as I mentioned, when he wrote his book, Evidence for the Afterlife, he investigated 1,300 near-death experience cases from around the world and, and talked about the similarities the similarities that these 1,300 near-death, near-death experience cases hold. Now, again, it's now upwards to close to 4,000 that we're talking about now. So he, he mentions the similarities here. 75.4% report experiencing an out-of-body separation of their consciousness from their bodies. 74.4% report having heightened senses, including experiencing reality that was more real than the present reality. 76.2 report experiencing incredible emotions and sensations of peace. 33.8 report passing through a tunnel. 64.6% report seeing a divine being or, or mystical light, or of mystical light, excuse me. 57.3% report encountering angelic beings, deceased relatives, and or deceased friends. report having an altered sense of space and time. Uh, 22.2% experienced a life review. It's on a lower end, but still, you know, 22% of of 1,300 people, uh, you do the math, that's that's quite a few. Uh, 52.2% report encountering unworldly heavenly realms. 56% experienced some special kind of uh, learning, uh, some type of... uh, um, new knowledge about life and about the importance of life, and thirty-one uh, percent witnessed some boundary or barrier, and fifty-eight point five percent were aware of their decision to return back to the body. Now, Jeffrey Long in his book provides nine proofs, but from this research, nine proofs of an afterlife. One is lucid death. This lucid death is unlike anything that any type of hallucination can provide. Proof two is the out-of-body experience that people have. Proof three is blind sight. What he means here is that blind individuals have had life-changing experiences. uh, Or blind individuals have had visual encounters. uh, They've had visual experiences that they've come back to report and then Afterwards, it was proven that they were still blind. Now, the, he goes through and tries to explain. He gives he gives a, a, a kind of an explanation of what he thinks is happening here. But still, he show he says it is a form of sight that they're seeing. If they don't have that sight when they return back to their body, um, proof four is that they're impossibly conscious after their death. Proof five is perfect playback. Proof six is family reunions, even seeing individuals that they didn't know were dead. Proof seven, from the mouth of babes. This is coming from young children who had these encounters who report having the same kind of experiences that adults have, even though they they may uh, look at it a little bit different. 
Proof eight is worldwide consistency. The, 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 these experiences are consistent across the globe. And proof nine is it comes from changed lives. It comes from changed lives. The people are changed after having these experiences. Jeffrey Long reports in his book, uh, Evidence of the Afterlife, he says, while people who have had a near-death experience often share it first with their immediate family and spouse, we found in the NDERF study that eventually many do talk about their NDE freely, including the after-effects and associated uh, positive, ch- positive changes that have taken place in their lives as a result of their experience. The original version of the NDERF study questionnaire asked, Has your life changed specifically as a result of your experience? Of those responding, 73.1% answered yes, 12.7% answered uh, uncertain, and only 14.2% answered no. Now, it must be... It must be understood, he goes on to say, that those who answered no answered the question just immediately after the near-death experience happened, and they didn't really have time to reflect on uh, the the, um, implications of what happened to them. Many different after-effects, he goes on to say, of near-death experiences have been described in prior studies. One of the earliest studies found that NDEs, now listen to this, one of the earliest studies found that NDEs described more confidence, excuse me, NDEers, those who have experienced NDEs, described more conf- self-confidence, a stronger sense of spirituality, a reduced interest in material gain or status, and a greater appreciation of life. Later research found a myriad of other after-effects, including a belief in the sacredness of God, a sense of God's presence, and a and and awareness of meaning and purpose in life. Near-death experiencers often become increasingly aware of the needs of others and are willing to reach out to them many more, uh, much more than what they were willing to do um, prior to their experience. Following their near-death experience, many people become more religious or spiritual They may become increasingly committed to their pre-existing religious practices and other NDEers um, uh, become more, more spiritual in their walk with God. Here again, this is coming from over 1,300 reported cases of NDEs. With that many individuals, well over 73%, saying that they have positively been impacted by their experiences. If the devil is behind this, (laughs) he's doing more work for the kingdom of God (laughs) than the church may be doing, quite honestly. Uh, He's actually benefiting the kingdom instead of uh, detracting from the kingdom, and we know that's not what Satan does. So there are positive benefits that come from these near-death experiences. There are lives that have been changed. And what we find, going back to the initial objection, is that there are actually far more similarities than what we've been led to believe. And as we mentioned, Dr. Long's research has grown to well over now 3,000 near-death experiences, closer to 4,000 now. 
He, he goes on to say, while skeptical at the beginning of his research, he now concludes that electrical activity in the lower part of the brain cannot account for the highly lucid and orderly experiences described by NDE accounts. And he goes on to say that lucidity coupled with the predictable order of core elements establishes that NDEs are not dreams or hallucinations, nor are they due to any other causes of impaired brain functioning. So these are the objections. I don't think they're very strong against near-death experiences. Uh, I don't think that they can account for the numerous cases that are out there. Again, we're not talking about a handful of cases. We're talking about thousands and thousands of cases from across the board, across the globe even. But before we close the podcast, I do need to give an air of caution concerning near-death experiences. Now, next week, we're going to close the book. We're going to close the book on near-death experiences as we talk about the philosophical implications. And we'll go back and 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 field any questions that Curtis may have. And if you have any questions about near-death experiences that you would like asked on next week's episode, by all means, send us us an email. Um, Send us an email or or submit a question to Bellator Christie. There's a link there on the homepage you can find. But I want to give us I want to give us a safeguard when evaluating near death experiences, and simply remember the acrostic ask ask three simple points. First of all, remember that a lot of these stories are analogies. They really happened, and they're describing things that took place. But each person will use human analogies to describe eternal sights. That's why I believe in the book of Revelation we see so many symbols. Because how do you identify? How do you identify certain things that cannot be described in earthly terms? The best thing we can do is use analogies that make sense to us. So that's why for some people when they see angels, maybe they compare them to butterflies. Does that really mean that they're butterflies? Well, of course not. But it might be something that might be the, the, the thing that they can best, it might be the image that they can best comprehend and, to, and communicate with. It may be the very best thing they can do to identify what they're seeing. Okay, um, People have reported seeing colors that that we simply can't see on earth or experiencing a sense of timelessness and feeling pure and unadulterated expressions of divine love. How do you describe that in simple terms? Well, it's difficult. So people have to use analogies to describe what they see. So A, remember the analogies. A in the acrostic ask stands for analogies. Two, The second thing, the S, stands for scriptural priority. When looking into these stories, while remembering that we often have to use analogies to describe spiritual things in human terms. By the way, that's why Jesus taught in parables. He taught in parabolic stories to to communicate spiritual truths on a level that we could best identify. When looking into these encounters, remember that God's revelation takes precedent over the stories themselves. If a person claims to have heard something that runs counter or contradictory to Scripture, then one must wonder whether the person heard it correctly or if he or she is interjecting their own philosophy into their experience. Because sometimes that may be what happens. 
a person may have an encounter, and the best thing, the best way they can understand it is by adopting it into their own worldview. Okay, uh, does that mean they didn't hear something? Well, it doesn't mean they may have heard something. May have heard something powerful in the afterlife, but it may not have been exactly what they have what they propose. So remember to keep scriptural priorities, keep scriptural teachings first, and then you know go from there. And then lastly, K, keep necessary points. Keep the necessary points. When it comes to evaluating near-death experiences, there may be times when believers may want to cast out the objective aspects of a certain NDE due to the subjective elements of the experience, um, mainly because of the person's worldview. But in cases such as these, it's best to use the analogy of eating fish. When I went to Fruitland Baptist Bible College, they told us that as you further your education, remember the analogy of eating fish. When you eat fish, you eat the meat and spit out the bones. You eat the meat and spit out the bones. So, in like manner, find the value in NDEs, but spit out anything that does not mesh with the revelation of God. Okay? These encounters hold tremendous value for us as Christians. And I think we have done ourselves a great disservice by throwing away or tossing aside near-death experiences because of a few objective, objectional, um, uh, objectional points. So the value in near-death experiences are treme- tremendous, and we're going to talk about that coming up next week. So, but just remember the acronym or the acrostic ASK, ASK. One, remember the analogous forms of uh, that we have to use to describe spiritual truths. Remember to keep Scripture first, scriptural priority. And K, keep the necessary elements, toss out those that are unnecessary. And so, hopefully, this has given you a little bit of a ground to uh, know how to stand against the objections that are often launched against near-death experiences. Um, So we're going to talk more about uh, this. If you have any questions that you'd like to submit, that you'd like Curtis to pose to me next week, uh, be sure to send them to us at uh, Bellator Christie. Again, bellatorchristie.com. Submit a question. Uh, There's a link there on the home page, or you can send us an email. Uh, We would love to communicate with you and, uh, and, and, and really go through and talk about some of these issues. I really think that near-death experiences hold a ton of objective evidence supporting their case. And again, let's just not make the mistake of throwing the baby out with the bathwater just because of a, of a few objectionable aspects to some of the stories that are presented. Well, this is the end of uh, our third episode. We hope and pray that you have a wonderful and blessed week ahead, and we'll see you back the next time as we step into the arena of ideas. This is Brian Chilton, and you've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. 
The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash bellatorchristie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to True North, the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of bellatorchristie.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today.